a Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hey everybody, great to have you with us. It is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. We are ripping and roaring into 2022. On this edition, we are taking a look at a classic car. It is the Marcus Ambrose two-time championship winning Pertex Stone Brothers Falcon. And the season starts with a dash of blue as Marcus Ambrose wins race one of the Pixel 500. Massive noise here at Eastern Creek as Marcus Ambrose wins the race and celebrates his second consecutive championship victory. What a performance. The HRT car is not quite comfortable in his oh, Ambrose has had a massive shot. Ambrose has had a massive shot. So Greg Murphy's involved. More cars. The track is jammed. The track is jammed. Can you believe that? That was huge. It's on. It's Murphy on. and Ambrose. These two do not like each other. And they are going to have some serious words. What a way to thank the Stone Brothers team. What a day for the Stone Brothers. Marcus farewells the country in the series with a round victory. Well done, Marcus Ambrose. Congratulations and good luck. As he comes onto the straight, okay, mate. the number one Pertec Ford is number one at Phillip Island. Oh, that brings back just a couple of memories, doesn't it? The Ford fans are a little bit excited because we are focusing in on the history of what I would just about say is one of the most valuable Ford V8 supercars, certainly, of that era. And it stacks up in the argument of one of the most valuable Ford race cars in Australian motorsport history. We will talk about that. I won't do it on my own. Will Dale is in for his first pot of the year. Hello, fine sir. Good morning or afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to us. I think you've covered them all in that (laughs) one little brief bit there. I think you've got them all. Uh, The Marcus Ambrose Ford will no doubt have plenty of people interested. Last year, we spoke, well, I spoke to Marcus Ambrose uh, at GRM and we talked a bit of, well, a fair bit of Stone Brothers era mm. about this car. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say Marcus Ambrose Pertec Falcon? Beyond beyond the obvious stuff, beyond the wins, beyond the – it was the fact that – so as, as I've mentioned on the podcast a few times before, I went through high school – 98 through to 2002 as a Ford fan that was a really rough time worst era to probably be one of those yeah alas so what so this car basically made life easier this car gave kids like you hope of exactly. not getting the crap kicked out of you at school exactly you could actually talk about something rock up to school on a monday morning and there was something good to talk about from your side of things <laughs> yeah, a win yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in all seriousness i sort of see this as the car that gave ford fans hope hmm. because they just come off the back of five years in a row having been kicked to the curb by the holden racing team whether it be Craig Lowndes or Mark Scaife, they went and won all those championships in a row. The AU Falcon was this great white hope that really never delivered. Uh, Had its odd little bright days in the sun, but not enough of them to stitch together a championship. And the road car, ugly as sin. Yeah, it still is. It hasn't got any better over the last 20 years. But the BA gave hope and it gave a chance for a a new platform, but the Project Blueprint era started at the same time that this car Mm. came in, which was... A lot of people uh, have heard of the the description but don't know what it meant. Basically, it was at the point where supercars went, right, we're going to try to stop some of the crap talk and the parody and the fights and give them the same underneath the skin. So, Because you remember like the previous generation Commodore had McPherson strut front end mm-hmm. instead, where the Falcon had double wishbone set up. Well, from 
the BA Falcon and the VY Commodore onwards, both cars had double wishbones in the front. So they were, for all intents and purposes, identical yeah, in that so aspect. Yeah, so quit the complaining. If you've got the same thing, you've got the same or a much closer opportunity to get the result done. And, and Ambrose obviously came off a period where he'd been he made his mark straight away in 01 mm. and 02. Uh, yeah, he didn't win championships, but he made his mark at the right times. And don't forget, he came off the back of 2002 dominating the last round mm. at Sandown, the V8 Ultimate, where he won both, I think it was a 48-lap race and a 96-lap race. It yeah. was like they were long races. Mm. And he just kept driving away and away and away from the field. Kmart cars, HRT cars, uh, he was the best of the Fords over that season without doubt and rolled off from that into the new year. Two new BAs, one for him, one for Russell Ingle. And and the, what he achieved with that car that we're focusing in on is really special. Two championship wins, couple of Adelaide 500 wins, Sandown 500 win, but the one thing that's missing from the trophy case for it is something relating to Bathurst that's trophy or success related. It has other history, but <laughs> it does not have the memorable for. has memorable moments at Bathurst, but all the wrong kinds of ones. Uh, that said, this car's Bathurst record isn't. If you divorced it from its success at every other venue and every it's other aspect, it's actually not too it's bad. It's okay without setting the world on fire. It would have well, it would have gone to Bathurst three times. Well, went to Bathurst with Marcus three times. Um, and two top five finishes and probably was on for a top five finish in the last attempt with him in 2005 until it um, all went pear-shaped at the cutting late in the race with Greg Murphy. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never heard of this incident in my <laughs> life before. Uh, if you haven't, the great thing is we've chatted to both combatants over the years. Marcus mm. Ambrose on the pod last year and Greg Murphy as well. We did an episode with him. Was that last year or the year before? Year I can't before. remember now. Before. The last few years do merge uh, all into one. But, um, yeah, I mean, fifth in 2003 with Russell Ingle. Remember the split livery Pertec Caltex car? That was this car. Yes, the blue and the teal, yes. Yep. And then in uh, 04 with Greg Ritter, they finished fourth. They had a, a few tyre issues late in the race and had to kind of roll out. They were part of that pack of Fords that were chasing uh, Greg Murphy, there he is again. He pops mm. up here, there, and everywhere in this thing. Um, it's What staggers me about this is that Marcus Ambrose spent five years at Stone Brothers. So it's a lot of racing. That's a lot of miles. And he raced two cars, only two cars in that entire five-year period. Some guys have had five, six, seven chassis in that space of time. I mean, Craig Lowndes drove five different chassis within one season in 1999. <laughs> so this is a real rarity. And it's not one of those ones where five people bowl out in the future of history to go, I've got the Marcus Ambrose championship winner because mine did this many rounds or mine did the one where he clinched it or mine did the most winning. There's one. That's hmm. it. Well, it boils down to it. The two cars he drove were two very good cars relative to everything else that was around at the time. And if you're onto a good thing and you can't build any, or why, why mess with a winning combination? Basically, I'm, I'm sure if Marcus had continued on with Stone Brothers beyond 2005, as was the original plan before he went to go to NASCAR, um, probably would have had a new car for 06. But as it was, these, this is the only BA he raced for Stone Brothers. It is, and, and we'll cover off a bit of its post-Marcus history a little bit later. But the thing that sticks in my mind of its two championship wins, the first one was more dominant. The mm. second one was a bit more of a... An effort. There was a few more speed humps along the way, but in 03, remember he came out and just went bang and just kept winning yep. straight up. I think he was at the first four rounds of that year, which hadn't been done. I think since Moffat had done it in '77, off the top of my head. But well, he won a race at Clipsal, but he didn't win. Well, overall. yeah, I mean, he was. Yeah, it was that 
situation where Scaife's the round winner. But, mm. um, you know, yeah, he won. He just kept winning. Like his numbers were, were on target. I mean, he won. For, and, and we were back in the round era back mm. then, individual races, but the podium was decided of rounds. I mean, in 03, he went uh, wins at Eastern Creek, Winton, Barbagallo, Darwin, Ipswich, Oran Park and Eastern Creek again because we had two rounds there in the, the one particular season. So seven round wins in 03. Like of thirteen, that's a dominant performance. It's hard to beat. Yeah, but I, and the funny thing is, the timing. Life's about timing, and motorsports about timing too. Mm. So, remember it. If you looked at the other side of the fence in two thousand oh one oh two, there's no way in hell you would have sat there and gone, "HRT era will end." It felt like it no. was never going to end because they had the thing by the throat in terms of race wins, rounds, podiums, championships. And then things turned to shit for Tom Welkinshaw. Well, it's funny how 2003 is such a um, such a delineation of eras because, of course, we talked about Project Blueprint coming in, which was an obvious technical change that would have resulted in a lot of work from big teams to try and adapt to those. But, of course, TWR, HRT, Kmart Racing, that big entity, of course, was the best place to do all that. But as you mentioned, all things went south for TWR internationally at the end of 2002 with declaring bankruptcy and that had an obvious impact on its local operations here where they needed someone to take over them and purchase them and save them from going into receivership and being split up and sold off with everything else. Yeah, well, and and Holden jumped on it to secure it, which uh, is against the rules. Like yeah. They argued, well, hang on, we had to save it and then we'll, <laughs> we'll offload it. But yeah. the rules are that a manufacturer can't own a team in the mm. championship. So they were protecting the assets and then decided how and where they went. And there's a whole other podcast in all of that. But mm. We did talk to Mark Scaife about that side of things in the first time he visited this podcast. Yeah, yeah. And, and virtually of that whole era, he struggles to have much of a memory because there was so much crap yeah. going on. You'd need to get the diaries out for the minute by minute of who, what, when, where. But the point of this one is that as Ambrose and Stone Brothers are bowling out with their new car and it's kind of fixed all the AU problems, mm. the other mob are weaker. They're, they've got more stuff going on off the track than they do on the track. They're converting their old cars. They're going to a new platform of Project Blueprint. Um, built, they've got a new engine program to come along with. So there's a lot of stuff going on on the other side of the fence, whereas on the Stone Brothers' side, continuity's there. Same drivers, same sponsor groups, same engineering lineup. All the pieces of the puzzle are there just with a better play toy to go play with. And Ambrose, I mean, he decimated Ingle really in that, particularly in that first year. Mm. And, and across their three years together, the numbers don't lie. I mean, Ingle did win the 05 championship in the end, but because he didn't do it by winning. No, he, he, he had did the it consist- by being consistent. He had the consistent run that Marcus didn't have in 2005. Yeah, yeah. But there's no doubt, pace for pace, pound for pound, Ambrose dominated Ingle for three years, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. And this car, I mean, was was a ripper. But speaking of those two, they ran together. We mentioned it before for Sandown and Bathurst, the split livery, that whole situation where you could put your main drivers together. And that gave us this unique super team combination with the weirdo <laughs> combined Caltex Pertec livery as well. <laughs> Pretty it was not. It was nah. like the combination of the blue... The Caltex, it wasn't, I said teal before, but it wasn't really teal. It was like an aqua sort yeah, of. It wasn't pretty, no, whatever it was. No, it wasn't that good. And unfortunately, it also didn't really work out from the um, driver combination either as they didn't really want the same things from the car 
and they just weren't that quick. Well, Ingle had himself a little mischief at Sandown, do you recall? Ah, uh, yes. Yep, Didn't pump the pedal yep. and ended up firing it off into the sand at turn one. Yeah. Um, but the great irony was that the next year, Greg Ritter spun Ambrose's co-driver in this car Same at turn spot. one. Yeah. Um, but didn't end up in the bunker, but ended up in the wet grass and sat there with the thing pegged trying to get it to get back to the black stuff, lost just about a full lap, mm. got it back on the road, got it going, got it, uh, handed it back to Marcus who was able to drive his way back through and go on and win the race. So uh, contrasting fortunes for same car at same corner with different backsides in the, in the seat. 12 months apart. And that 2004 weekend, that was if you got off uh, off the tarmac that weekend, <laughs> you were in a lot of trouble. What was the um, like? What was, oh, it had the record. It had the record. Safety cars, I think, something like that. Yeah, forty six appropriately of them for a WPS WPS cars. Number. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah, it was not a weekend that you wanted to get out in the mud because you would stay stuck there. And and they were very lucky and very fortunate that they were able to get away with that and come back for the win. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars, unforgettable. Wet weather seemed to have a bit of a theme for this car because 2003, the championships decided in Marcus's favour out at Eastern Creek and it rained so heavily. It knocked out the power. It knocked out the timing. Uh, It was, I mean, they talk about the, the no result, no race races in recent years because of wet weather. Go and have a look at the tape of the the track at Eastern Creek in the final round of 03. You could take a boat out there and you would have gone <laughs> faster and probably won a trophy. It was <laughs> I was out there that day. It was absolutely insane how much rain poured on down. And of course, this came off the back of the whole Scafingle drama earlier on in the day. So mm. um Marcus doing his victory burnouts in the wet doesn't really work for photos because no smoke. <laughs> No. You remember that round was also the only full field super cup shootout in championship history. You know why I remember everyone got to go. I do remember. You know why? Mm-hmm. Because you wrote a story about it on the website not that long ago. Yes. And you know why I wrote that story? Because a punter could was able to win a year's supply of Victoria Bitter <laughs> based on drawing the correct driver that morning. This is where we uh, love to appeal to our listeners. If you're a V8 Sleuth podcast listener who was part of the draw, for the full field shootout at Eastern Creek in 03, tell us who was the driver that you were nominated with and what you did with the beer. We we have he- we have heard from one of the one of the contestants who one of the um one of the punters who didn't choose the winning driver. Uh, they actually got Brad Jones. Oh well, that was their problem. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but if you love Brad Jones, which I do, mm. uh, I hope you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks because we've had two parts of. Bradley with lots of Oscar, NASCAR, Audi stuff. We barely got onto any supercar stuff. We'll go and do another one with him. If you haven't heard our Brad Jones episodes, uh, have a listen. They're from the last two weeks. Go through our archive of podcasts and have a listen. There's plenty of good stories in there that will keep you entertained. Hey, quick one too before we keep talking about the Marcus Ambrose Falcon. The Castrol Motorsport News podcast is back every Tuesday this year with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomeus. Uh, News, views, opinion and analysis of all of the latest in Australian and international motorsport. It's your must-listen-to pod. Perfectly timed for when you're driving on home from work on a Tuesday or if you're coming in on a Wednesday morning. 
perfect to get you through the commute, perfect to tune into. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode with the boys. It is up and running, the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. You can listen to it through our website, but through Apple and Spotify or wherever you listen to your pods, that's one to not miss out on at all. So Marcus Ambrose wins the championship in 2003. Ford fans rejoice. Hmm. And then Probably worth just before we leave 2003, just to add to the theme of the Holden teams being in a bit of disarray, and probably not having the strongest platform overall to tackle Ambrose. You remember that it was him and Greg Murphy at going for the championship at that final race, primarily. Murph was an outsider. Murph was an outsider. Ma- one of those mathematical uh, chances that we hear about every year. Which was ruined even further when he injured his back. Yeah, he did. Yeah. VB yeah. Challenge. VB Challenge Cup. Bring you done. Yeah. <laughs> So that that basically gave Marcus not a free shot at the championship, but, but it would one. have been hard for him. Not, yeah, yeah, he would have needed to really trip on his toes to yeah. stuff that one up on the way through. So Ford win their first championship since Glen Seton in 97. Mm. They break the five-year drought. Ambrose and Stone Brothers have seized the power of supercars. There's no doubt about it. I mean, Holden teams were still competing strongly that year. Mm. Jason Bright was a factor for Team Brock, but they couldn't go and test because they were – tied up in this whole drama of the TWR fallout. They were in the older model VX Commodore. Um, HRT are developing the new 18-degree engine. So there were, every Holden team had something not quite right with it along the way, and that's not to take away from Ambrose. No, I think he still would have done if it was the – all the ownership stuff wasn't going on over 02 into 03. I still think he wins 03. I still Agreed. think he rolls totally out at the agree. level that he, that he ended up being at. So in 04 – he bowls out with a win at Clipsal. He's runner-up at New Zealand. He's runner-up in Perth. He wins Ipswich. He wins Oran Park. He wins the Sandown 500. He's second on the Gold Coast, and he wins at Eastern Creek. Now, when you look at that as a volume of podium visits and firsts and seconds, you'd think, wow, that's a pretty tough year for him to get beaten. But there are all sorts of little pathways and tripwires across the year. And the first one I wanted to talk to you about, Remember Queensland Raceway 04, the win that wasn't a win that became a win again? Ah, yes. Wiregate. Mm. Yeah. So that was post-race scrutineering. They've looked at the control ECU and found an extra set of wire, extra um, plug hanging off the side of it. That wasn't connected to anything. Mm. Mm. Um, But, uh, yeah, it was called into question and he was initially... I believe he was initially excluded. He, no, no, he points. was to keep his result, yeah. but he would lose the points, which at the time I think was 192 for a win, yes. which is weird that I remember that sort of stuff. But No, at, actually, it's probably probably accurate that if anyone's going to remember that oh, sort of stuff, it's just the weird it's stuff. That, yeah. Yes, it's in the back of my brain. Yeah. I remember flying back from Queensland to Melbourne Sunday night after the race, landing at Melbourne Airport, and the news came. I mean, this is before everyone flicked up your phone to read Twitter or Facebook while you're mm. waiting for your bag at the carousel. <laughs> yeah. um, but the news quickly spread like wildfire that Ambrose is gone. He's mm. he's going to be scrubbed here. They've found a wire. And I think Stephen Richards was second on the day and stood to take the win for the Castrol Perkins team. So And probably the championship lead that year too. Uh, yeah, because he was right in contention, yeah. Richo, for the first half of that year. Jason Bright was a factor again as well. Ingle was a bit more competitive that year. But um, – in the end, he kept the result because they proved that, well, yes, it shouldn't have been there, but it didn't do anything. Yeah. Um, which, were they fined out of that from memory? So you're right. They they did cop a fine still. So initially they received, or eventually, initially they received a $10,000 fine. And on the appeal, they got that dropped to 5000 
for having the additional wires and connectors on the ECU wiring loom. And the great irony was that later in the year on the Gold Coast, the Holden Racing team had a similar issue with Todd Kelly, who finished on the podium, and he got scrubbed from the Sunday race as a result and lost that podium result for a very similar thing. So off the back of the Ambrose thing came <laughs> yes. the whole, well, we're not going to, you know, there's going to be a very clear distinction on what you can and can't do here. Yeah. And HRT fell fell foul, I should say, um, of that a little bit later on. But there was... It's, it is worth noting that that 192 points wouldn't have made a difference to the final championship. Still would have won. He still would have won. He, the eventual margin over Russell Ingall was 238 points. Yeah, right. And the other thing was, though, in those days, you dropped your worst round after Bathurst. Mm. So system was quite different then as it is to how it is now, where everything counts towards the, the overall championship tally. Which is but, very fortunate, as Ambrose did have a very bad round in that period before Bathurst. Yeah, well, there's there was a couple that sprung to mind. And the one that sprung in my mind is Winton. <laughs> yes, We exactly. talked about wet weather and this car getting involved in, you know, burnouts to celebrate championships in the wet and then Ingle off in the wet at Sandown in 03. In 2004, Ambrose finds himself in that wet, boggy Winton infield when it's a 100-lap, 300K race, and he's stranded. The thing's mm. spinning the rear tyres like you wouldn't believe. So he gets out, lets them down, uh, drops the pressures out of him, and gets it going onto the road and gets back in the race and scores a handful of points. So... Those ones always help, and they're those quirky mm. stories of supercars history that uh, just uh, unless you stop and it's the one that you forget about. Oh, yeah. Until I sat down here and prepped before we did this episode, I probably would have forgot that and focused on the wins and the Sandown win and the Adelaide wins and the championships and stuff like that. But that was a cool little piece of ingenuity to get himself back in the game. Well, again, that was another day where anyone who went off the track was probably going to get a bit stranded. I think Mark Scaife <laughs> went off in the exact same spot and got stuck and, yeah. Um, and Marcus, I'm not sure whose bit of ingenuity that was, whether that Might was... Might have got a radio suggestion. Yeah, which was mm. a very good one and, um, yeah, got him out. Got him out. Uh, the, the Marcus chat that I had with him last year was really great. We talked about a lot of stuff relating to this car. We'll put the link to that episode in the show notes of this one if you haven't caught it so as you can quickly find it without having to scroll too far. But remember the whole thanks for the great start, Ken? <laughs> yes. He talks about that in that podcast. And I think it was that Queensland round where the wire gate occurred that um, he'd made a really great start and came over the radio to thank Ken Douglas, who was mm. working with Stones at the time. They'd been working really hard on getting better starts for him. And, of course, the chat went around the whole paddock that, oh, they've found this ECU thing. Thanks for the great start, Ken. Oh, there's traction control here. Oh, there's mm. there's dodginess going on. And, of course, you know what the paddock's like. Yeah. Oof. Away it went for the next couple of weeks. Who would have thought that wouldn't be the most memorable bit of team radio to come out of that particular <laughs> chassis over its lifetime? Well, we it was good at the time, but, um, yeah, it kind of got usurped. We later have on. far more um, team radio usage and supply around in the modern championship, but that one really did stand out to mm. uh, be quite memorable. I mentioned the car winning the Sandown 500 with Marcus and Greg Ritter in 2004. Remember that there was also the blue that he had with uh, Rick Kelly and Greg Murphy on the Gold Coast that year. Oh, yes. That was right when the pressure was right on Marcus. It got mega, mega intense. And he was the lone Holden, uh, sorry, the lone Ford guy mm. up against all these Holden blokes. Yeah. Murphy, Bright, Richards, Scaife on occasion popping up there and giving the hard time in a year that HRT had a, an otherwise pretty tough year. And he, he blew his cool on the mm. Gold Coast. He 100% brake tested Rick Kelly 
after the line on the Gold Coast after that first race. Oh, no what, doubt. What I was standing the, there yeah. when they all came in because I was the came up PR guy mm. and I know what he said to Rick in the aftermath <laughs> and what he was going to do to him if he did it to him next time. It was I tell you what, people talk about the current championship and the drivers, you know, there's not enough rivalry and there's not enough, you know, ego and there's not enough edge to it. Man, in that early to mid-2000s period, it was peak, like mm. 100% peak. Like it was narky between – it was narky between the PR people, let alone between <laughs> the drivers and the teams and the mechanics. Like there were plenty of times that there were blues and arguments and dispatches in the press about various blokes and – Test, tetchy press conferences was bloody great. Well, of course, that particular weekend was the um, peak of the tetchy press conferences between Greg and Marcus mm, the following day. The next day. It is the best press conference incident. ever. Yeah, yeah. Best, conference, best presser ever. Yeah. I think we need to issue a challenge to some current supercar blokes just to pick a target at the start of the year and find your chance and land one <laughs> in a press conference. Just have a have a dip. Like, everyone banged on last year about Van Gisbergen's little talk about Will Davison being, you know, the second DJR car or then it wasn't the good DJR car being the yeah. other car out of the race. Like that was kindergarten crap compared to the stuff that used to go on back in the day. That was like a flesh wound. That was so minimal <laughs> yeah. compared to what we're used to from, from back in the day. Um, but the thing is with Marcus Ambrose in that period, he got the job done in 04, hmm. but it was one of those ones where the, in Tasmania, remember Tasmania had been off the calendar. Yeah. He hadn't been able to do a hometown round until that year. Mm. It had been gone since 99. Yeah. And of course, he wasn't in the championship till 2001. So he finally gets the chance to race at home mm. um, and mathematically could have wrapped it up there but blew an engine. In the so, final race of the weekend, yeah. Yeah, so the whole fairy tale kind of had to wait until the next round at Eastern Creek, which hosted the final for the second year um, in a row. And the thing was there, I don't know if you remember this, but because the, the in that time – Supercars wasn't like it is now live. Mm. So the Saturday, there was a Saturday Twilight race that was scheduled and 10 actually made a very big call for 2004 and ran it live. Yeah. Like it wasn't like that would have been a delayed telecast otherwise in if the championship wasn't on the line. And even the Sunday afternoon telecasts in those days um, were generally all delayed, not massively, no. but enough to not be live. Well, you think of you think of that season as actually another really good example with Hidden Valley. The Saturday race was never shown live. It was always you just highlights, get highlights on Sunday. Which in particular that year, mm. the last lap of that particular Hidden mm. Valley Saturday race saw Marcus and Scaife off at the final corner well, while battling for the win. Old Scaife was asleep there. Mm. He left the door wide open for Marcus to jam it up the inside of the last corner to Grab the race win, but the problem didn't work, was didn't work they, they both claimed off the road and Ingle got him and won the race. <laughs> yeah. And then it wasn't the next day that Ambrose accidentally punted Ingle off at the first yeah. corner. And that was <laughs> we should talk about this. This was in the days when if you hit your teammate, race control kind of went, Oh well, the team's penalized, no penalty. Mm. Which was just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Because what does that do for the bloke who's parked in the boonies and running around twenty seventh, yet his teammates charging on P three and guilty of a crime? Yeah. That was a joke that that happened, and it happened for a long time. Well, not an issue anymore. No, but it was a joke that it happened. Yeah. Which it, like, it doesn't matter which car you hit, whether it's from your garage or not. The other guy's a competitor, and you've impacted him, so like literally impacted him, <laughs> yes. and you deserve to be punished for it. But he, he got off there, and other people in the pit. It wasn't just because it was Marcus. Other drivers got away with that because they collided with their teammate and um, nothing was, was forthcoming. So... 
2004, Marcus wins the championship. He does it in that live Saturday twilight race on Channel 10. Um, two in a row and a harder grind to get there. I mean, won a lot of stuff still, but in 03 when he didn't win, he was second or third or, you know, a fifth or sixth in the Enduros. Hmm. In 04, if he didn't win or run at the front. He's still top five. He still had plenty. Yeah, but he had a lot of drops. He had that engine going tazzy. He had a few other dramas along the way that didn't quite pan out right. I mean, it's one of those ones where the, the opposition was stronger in hmm. 04, but they didn't quite hold on for long enough. Yeah. He, he was against strong opposition, but none of them were similar to 2003. They just weren't able to put in a full year where they were consistently strong. And the classic, no, no one was. The classic example, that's Steve Richards and Perkins' team. Yeah. They would they would generally Humor, go all right yes. to the Enduros. And as we talked about with Richo before, it's in the Perkins Engineering Car History Book, which, by the way, if you haven't got a copy, we're out. We've got none left. But good news, the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama do have stock left. So give them a call, uh, send them a note through their Facebook page or get in touch. Um, they're open six days a week, every day except Tuesday. That's the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama Bathurst. Cool cars, cool memorabilia. Stop on in if you're heading through that part of the world, whether it's at a race meeting or just moseying on through in other parts of the year. There's plenty of cool stuff to see there, including the Larry Perkins uh, exhibition. But if you haven't got a Perkins car history book, they're limited to only 2,500. There's only a handful left there, so make sure you chase them up and grab your copy. But as Richo talks about in that book, they couldn't sustain it all the way through. Mm. Jason Bright and PWR couldn't quite sustain it all the way through. Marcus did sustain it all the way through and got it done in the, the clutch moments. So then we go to 2005. Mm. There's lots of stuff to unpack from 05. <laughs> now, this is... Very where, easily. Where do we begin? Like I mean, well, I was just, I was just wondering, but I'm probably beginning at the beginning, where at the Australian Grand Prix he announces to the world he's off. Yep, he's leaving at the end of the year. Although he's got a contract for 2006, mm. he's being released from it a year early to go and chase the dream of NASCAR in the US with the support of Ford. So he's, it's kind of like when a player. I mean, it doesn't happen in AFL, does in NRL when they've announced where they're going for the next season. Long way out from that season starting. It was this weird vibe for the whole year to begin with, let alone what happened on the track. Yeah. It's funny that you think about that same sort of era. The following year, Fernando Alonso announces, oh, yeah, I'm going to McLaren. A year early. In 14 months' time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting that because then that set up, the fact that he was leaving and he felt like he had the big target on his back as the two-time champion. He was the main guy. Everyone's gunning for him. Set up a rather interesting start to the year where, of course, Marcus came out at Clipsal, won both races. Was that two consecutive Clipsal 500 victories mm. in that yeah, car? Yeah, he won four as well. And he won one of the races in 03, so he was, I think, five from six mm. race wins, yeah. But as we talked about, the holding opposition that wasn't sort of consistently strong the, year bef- the couple of years before were now right on his bumper and really, really giving him a hard time. We get to Barber Gallo, third <laughs> round of the year, where his old mate Mark Scaife, they arrive at turn one in each other's doors and um, off the road. And Marcus then copped a penalty, copped two penalties for that? Well, no, well, he got a drive-through. During the race. Because they both yeah. ploughed off through the sand at turn one. Yes. Marcus gets the drive-through, comes out 29th, 5 millionth, wherever it is, and because he's, he was so fast, seriously, yeah. he drove his way back through the field. And I think he finished fourth or something like that. 
Curve. You've probably got the data there in front of you that you can pull up to double check that. Mm. But basically, he went from the back to recovering a bloody good result. Yes. Fourth? Was it fourth? Fifth. Fifth? Fifth. 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 But in the aftermath, in the aftermath, he copped another post race penalty because I think they kind of was almost deemed that well. Was he really penalised if he got back to fifth? But mm. reality was he was. He drove, he, you know, he, he copped a whack. He did the, the crime and did the time. But they, they gave him more time for the crime. Um, and then he spat it on TV. Yes, which netted him a 25-point championship penalty and a $10,000 fine. And But that that dummy spit on TV is one of the all-time great sprays that he basically gave to the entire category have, have we got the surely we've yeah actually you know what we've got the audio somewhere let's dig it out and, and have a listen well marcus last a fifth good drive <laughs> yeah you know uh, i don't know with decisions like that in the racetrack i get a stopgate penalty and then get knocked off in the first corner i'm almost pleased i'm leaving the series because you know we're not going to lose this championship we're going to get it taken away from us but you know we fought back hard there and really pleased with the outcome we've got a Good chance to win race three. We had a fast car out there. I spoke to, spoke to Mark after the incident, and now that it's, you've had time to get out of the car and probably look at the damage down the side of the car, what's your take on the incident? Oh, mate, I'm just uh, taking some deep breaths. I'm just trying to uh, just collect my thoughts, really. I don't want to comment on, on anything out there too much because uh, I'll probably get a fine and be in more trouble than I already am. So by that point, can you get the vibe of something here? I think Marcus thinks everyone's on a Marcus and everyone is against Marcus. And if you'd just been penalised in a race and then um, copped another penalty, you'd be pretty fruity about it, I would have thought. I I actually felt sorry for him that day. Yeah, and it was interesting that in the aftermath of it, he went on RPM and delivered delivered an apology. The next week. The following yeah, yeah, week. which was the whole, um, oh, I'm really sorry. And I yeah, I really shouldn't have said all and, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and that was the right PR call. Um, to just 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 drop the heat a little bit because mm. it was starting to get fruity again off the track with you know all the Holden blokes are gunning at him and yeah. there's plenty of pressure. Ingle was more competitive mm. in 05, so that was there as well. Yeah. He's trying to jet backwards and forwards to do a bit of testing in trucks and stuff to the States. He's kind of got his eye on next year a bit as well. Mm. Like there was a lot going on in his world that year. So And, of course, then he ran into Scaife the following weekend at, at Eastern Creek. And... and and the funny thing about that was, so that was on the exit of turn three? It was, yeah, it was in turn three. And, and Ambrose, so there was overlap, very slight. Mm. Scaife in front, 90% of his car's in front of Ambrose. Scaife comes across the front a little bit. Ambrose doesn't lift. Scaife spun off the road. No penalty from memory because it was deemed, well, there was you overlap. weren't clear. There yeah. was overlap. So. When at the time there was arguments of, well, you know, he just sat there and let me do it. Like, I've got to turn into the corner. Mm. And it, you know, and because it was off the back of the last round yeah. of Perth, oh, it was great. It just fueled more fire to the whole thing. And that goes back to what I was talking about before where these guys, uh, you know, there was genuine rivalry among mm. them all and they weren't afraid to say what they felt in the press or in a press conference or to each other. It was great. Yeah. You do. We do still see it every so often, just never, probably not to that level, and no, not as not, cons- close. not as consistent throughout a season. No, and I mean Ambrose was the main Ford guy, and Scaife was the main Holden guy. Yeah, totally, and they totally. were running into each other two weekends, two events in a row. Yeah, and and that's where um, you you know if Ambrose was running into another Falcon or a lesser Commodore pilot, eh, it doesn't have the same 
oomph to it. But off the back of its scafe, its HRT. At the front of the field both times. It's fighting at the front. With the cameras on them. Yeah, it's scafe who's had the run-in with Ingle and, of course, everyone's replayed that a bazillion times over the, the years that followed. So all the elements are there for the two big dogs to be butting heads and that's what happened in this situation and, and in this instance. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. When you look at it, Ambrose is 2005. Like He's competitive. Like He runs um, pretty strongly. But the other thing that came to play here was that a new Ford team stepped up. Mm. It was Triple Eight because Lowndes had gone there. Yes. So Lowndes starts to get some wins on the board. Lowndes starts to challenge for the championship. Lowndes is the one fighting with Ingle later in the year. Lowndes is winning Sandown. Lowndes is suddenly winning with a team that's never won before and has now put themselves into the mix of Fordland as being, oh, we're chosen too. We're among mm. the fight here as well. Um, it's so- interesting that that crossover kind of occurred on that Eastern Creek weekend because Marcus, after his little incident with Mark Scaife, went on to win the opening race, but then it was a battle between he and Craig Lowndes for the second race. Lowndes got ahead in the pit stops and went on to take Triple Eight's first yeah. championship race win. And over 200-plus wins later, they're mm. still going strong. But for Ambrose that year... That, that you, middle section of the championship was, like, yeah, looking at the numbers, it was a horror show for him. Yeah, but... Relative st- to his usual still got, But he banked lots of podiums in the first part of the year. Mm. So he, he bowls out... A winner at Adelaide. Yeah. He's third at New Zealand overall. He's third still in Perth despite all that grief. Okay. He's second at Eastern Creek. He's second at Queensland to Lowndes, I think mm-hmm. from memory, wasn't he, in that year? Yep. Um, he's second at Oran Park to Ingle, I think, from memory. Yep. Uh, so he's he's banged out all these podiums and set himself up. The Enduros don't go to plan. Um, Gold Coast, I think he had some dramas as well. Didn't he have a shunt with the – remember the back window getting popped out of it at – at one stage that year. Mm. Um, and, but, and then he wins the last round at Phillip Island, his farewell weekend. So he book, the only two rounds he won that year were the first and the last mm. were Adelaide and Phillip Island. So in the middle, the first half of the year was great, but then once the Enduros came, I think he and Warren Luff paired up, didn't they, that year? Correct, so yes. At Sandown they had they're outside the 10 difficult day bit going on. Yeah, Crossed the line in 12th and then copped a post-race penalty for turning the number five FBR car at some point. Yeah, so lost a couple more points there with a, a, a positional decrease. But DNF at Bathurst, issue at the Gold Coast. So he kind of limped through the rest of the year and and couldn't get back up and win the title because Ingle wasn't winning Bathurst, but he was still P5, 6, whatever he was that average that they'd figured out that you had to finish like sixth in every race for the year mm. and he'd win the championship. So he was sort of doing what he had to do. But last round, Marcus left in style with that win where, of course, Ingle won the championship. So although he lost the title, uh, wasn't able to win it again, it stayed within um, Stone Brothers Racing for the following year with, with Russell. So It's worth noting that with that, despite all of Marcus's issue in the second half, issues in the second half of 05, he was still close to winning. Like, he was still in mathematical contention. He finished, what, 66 points behind Ingle. Had he not copped that 25-point championship penalty, he'd have been second in the title. Mm. And Lowndes was second yeah. in between them. If 
if that Bathurst crash hadn't happened, mm. he was top yeah, five. Yeah. He probably goes on to win that yeah. title. And the, the funny thing, though, is whether this car's a two-time championship winner or a three-time championship winner, mm. without a Bathurst win, it's always going to struggle in the eyes of collectors and I mean, it, it's a valued, cherished car, but imagine the stratosphere it goes to with a Bathurst win. Oh, of course. Huge. Of course. But I think I think everything else that's achieved off outside of Mount Panorama makes up for that. You don't have cars like this. Oh, no. You really it, don't. This, this is not to, to talk yeah. down. This is, you know, this is rarefied air that this car sits yeah. within, but generally when things are classics, they're because of Bathurst. That's a big part That's of true. what makes a car special to collectors, to for value, for man on the street. But if you wheel this car out, people who are any form of race fans remember it. Absolutely. Because it's distinct, that blue Pertec colouring, um, the yellow wheels, the Blue-red. yellow. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the livery is really stark. I reckon the the O three livery was a bit messy. Yeah, I was never a fan of the O three. Yeah, it just didn't quite okay because I sort of had the black bonnet. Yeah, and the black and blue, uh, it just didn't quite grab me. Whereas the O, if I had that car, I'd be, and I think it is restored to O four. Mm. I've looked at the photos of that car since it's been restored, and I just don't reckon the blue looks quite right. I don't <laughs> know. Maybe it's the photos and the light that they were taken in, but yeah, it doesn't quite look right. But Anyway, I'm sure they've done their homework on it when it was all put together with Ross and Jimmy putting it back together. But um, See, O4 is the logical point, especially, one, because the livery looks good, and two, it was a championship winner. Yep. But in my opinion, in terms of the liveries this car ran with Ambrose, O5 is the pick for mine. Yeah. Oh, I mean, Purely, it's nice. like, like there's not much difference, subtle evolution between yeah. O4 and it's O5, cool. except for one key element, and that's the giant number one they put on the bonnet for the O5 car. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the car having number one on it's a big factor for mm. me. You know, number four, 03, yeah, that's nice. Ambrose sort of was four. Mm. Um, it's a very Stone Brothers historical number, but yeah, yeah. one is one. One says champion, one says the best. Yeah. One says no- this is the big dog. And the big number one on the bonnet, you can see in the mirror of the car <laughs> if you're in front. It's Marcus. Yeah, Here definitely. I'm coming. Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. And the car we're talking about, which we didn't cover before, this, so this is – Stone Brothers Racing BAO2. Mm. So BAO1 was the Russell Ingall Caltex car, the, mm. the first two that they wheeled out. They ended up building, I think it was six BA and BF Falcons over the years that followed. So they got a fair amount of work out of all of those cars before the FG um, came into play down the track for Ford in what was that, 2009? Eight. Eight, nine, nine. Yeah, they bowled out. Ah, yes. Yeah, nine. Testing in 08 and then the race car version came along in in 2009. I did some numbers. These are stunning. So Marcus Ambrose, he did 78 championship races for 25 race wins, 32% win rate. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, 39 rounds. Uh, and this, this is in this car, mm. by the way, not his whole Stone Brothers period yeah. because there were two years he drove an AU. Yeah. Um, 39 rounds, 13 round wins, 22 podiums. So more than half of the times he went to a weekend, he finished on the podium. That's pretty – like that win rate's up there with, you know, some of the best. You, you take some of the best drivers in their best three-year period, mm. that's big time. That's massive, really oh, massive. Absolutely. No surprise that he won two titles and contended for a third over that time. Yeah, exactly. The thing was, though, the work for that car, you would think that 
all these teams, oh, well, it's a championship winning car. Marcus Ambrose is very special. We'll just put that one in the corner and then we'll just, uh, you know, look after it. It'll be worth a million one day. No one thinks that way in race teams. Mm. They've got to be onto the next mission. They've got to be getting the next car. They've got to be developing the next bit. They've got to find the next buck. They've got to reuse what they've got. So as much as we celebrate these cars' histories, and it probably happens a little bit more these days, but the cold, brutal, hard facts of it all are that this stuff costs money. So if you've got a race car and you've got a season the next year, more often than not, you're going to need it. It's a property. It's an entity. You need to use it to make cash, to make results, or all the above. Although they did kind of wheel this car into the corner for 06. They and tried. it was meant to stay there they tried a as few a times. spare, quote they unquote. Tried, they tried multiple times, Will, to retire this car. And the thing was, too, they had another car in 05 mm. that was largely built yeah. in Queensland. But they even after the big Bathurst crash where Ambrose and Murphy got together, they still repaired this one for the Gold Coast rather than wheel out the other one, their theory being, well, we've got to fix it anyway. Yeah. So let's just get on with it, get it done and get going. So that's and what why they take, And why take an absolute mint brand new car to, of all places, the Gold Coast well, they'd to already, christen it? Well, they'd done that before. They did that a few years earlier with David Bernard, remember? Because Again, Wayne Gardner had, had crashed an AU. Yeah, they had <laughs> yeah, to, but they, they, they had no did. other option. That yeah. other car wasn't really repairable. No, well, no, no. That's a whole other story, that yeah. one. So the thing was, this car, um, James Courtney tested it in late 2005 because, mm. remember, he did the deal. He drove for the Holden Racing Team in the Enduros but did the deal before the end of the season to take over from Ambrose the following year. Mm. So he was with the team. I think at Tassie and Phillip Island from memory. Mm. But he drove this car, um, and you cover this off. You, Motorsport News covered this in a great archive piece that we ran on our website um, in recent times, that James did a test in this at Queensland Raceway alongside Marcus mm. before the 05 Championship had even finished. Yeah, alongside in the most literal possible sense for a few laps as well, where James <laughs> got in the passenger seat while Marcus showed him around and showed him what showed him what was what. <laughs> but, yeah, Chris Lambden, the then, what was his role? At publisher. Sport? Yeah, publisher. Big kahuna. Yeah, um, was there trackside with the team. Dirk Kleinsmith was there taking photos. They were the only media there that day from a print perspective, and it was interesting because they talked about the speed that that deal came together at SBR was in part because that was their last test day of the year and they wanted to get James in a car. And he had, he then had to head off and finish his Japanese GT championship commitments. Super GT. Yes. I love that series. Those cars are cool. Yeah. Hold on um, the chat for Owen all the time. Yes. So, yeah, he went out and did largely a day of... Kind of donkey work out there, like betting brake pads and doing all sorts of things whilst Marcus did a bit of setup work in the morning. And, yeah, that was James's first drive of a Falcon V8 supercar. So you can add his name to the list of drivers for this car, but he wasn't planned on driving it the following no. year. But if you haven't read the story, jump on our v8sleuth.com.au website. Just search Courtney Stone Brothers in the search bar and you'll it'll find it. It'll, it'll turn up. So Courtney gets a new car for 06, which it's still blue and yellow, but it's gelled when not Pertec as the naming rights partner. Small problem, though. Mm. Two small problems, actually. Mm-hmm. James belts the crap out of his new car twice mm. in Adelaide. Uh, yeah. And, like, when you crash a turn eight at Adelaide, it's generally not a little one. So... The team have to pull the Ambrose winning car out and get it ready for the Grand Prix, which, of course, is I think in that year it was a week after Albert mm. Park. Non-championship in those days, but you had to be there. And then he runs it at Pukekohe, Perth and Winton before he gets back into mm. um, the other car. Crashed the, it at Albert Park as well, if I remember yeah, correctly. Yeah, yeah, on the run down to turn two, yeah. uh, three, 
three? Yeah, three. the long run yeah, out yeah. for the first couple of corners. Yeah, bounced off the concrete there as well just to make a bit more work for mm. Stone Brothers Racing at a time when – and that was now the period where we had the three years of Stone Brothers domination. Ingalls the reigning champion. Courtney's the new guy on the block, fast but crashing a bit and tearing stuff up. It, like, it's funny how it, tur- it turns so quickly to them being on top and the team to chase. In an 06, mm, it sort of became the rise of Triple Eight and the HSV dealer team. It sort of illustrated the gap between Ambrose and Ingle as drivers in that in Ambrose, SBR had someone who was really probably setting the pace more often and, than not. And literally setting pace because he was a gun qualifier. Exactly. And well, the other boy, Russell, by his own admission, never was. never was. One pole position throughout his Supercars Championship career, and it was at Winton with, with Perkins Engineering. But where Russell was able to sort of come through and get consistent results, if the cars weren't quite at that pointy end of the field, it doesn't matter if you're finishing consistently if it's eighth or ninth. Yeah, I mean, he's always, he always raced yeah. well, but when yes. you're coming from further back in the pack, then it makes life pretty bloody hard. So, yeah. Um, and the other thing was, I mean, they got... Well, Courtney finished third at Bathurst and Russell was fourth and they, yep. they had some results along the, the way. Closest finishes in history for yeah, a podium. It was like literally a piece of paper between them. Mm. But they'd lost their dominant spot that they never regained yeah. after that point. So that's why this SBR BAO2 Ambrose car is sits in such high esteem, not just for what it achieved, but it kind of was the figurehead car. I mean, if you were going to do, and one day I'm sure we will, if you're going to do a Stone Brothers book, what's the car you put on the front cover? It's this one. It's got to be that Clearly. one. Clearly. Like, yeah. really. I mean, it's the figurehead Stone Brothers car from the team's entire history. More than the Pertec Bathurst winner, I reckon. Yep. More than the Russell Ingall Championship winning Caltex uh, Haviland car. Yep. More than SP Tools or Irwin cars or anything else. Like A lot of these were great sponsors for years and familiar liveries, but they don't knock off this car. No, no. There's, there's just, as we've talked about for the past 50 or so minutes, there's just so much to this car representing representing more than its successes, representing like hope to Ford fans, representing something that they could be proud of, representing the resurgence of Ford as a brand in showrooms, for that matter, with the BA Falcon after the years with the um, with the AU. It's, yeah, it's, it's just a special car. It's a cool piece of metal memorabilia is what mm, I call yes. it. And, uh, that links me too to our friends from the Motorsport Trader. Head to their website and their socials. They're keeping your motorsport memories alive. They're, the, they're great in terms of uh, race suits, panels, all sorts of motorsport memorabilia. Uh, jump online, the Motorsport Trader, go to their website, go to their socials. They've got some really cool stuff. And if you're hunting for some stuff, they might be able to find it for you mm. as well. Now, this car wasn't finished once James Courtney handed it back either because – I'm pretty sure when Shane Van Gisbergen first drove a supercar at the end of 06 at a Stone Brothers ride day at the end of the season, I think he might have driven this car. Mm. But he definitely drove it the next year when he was testing before he debuted with Team Kiwi. At the time, it was the Jonathan Webb Stone Brothers run development series car. So it was Mm. blue with the fluoro yellow, um, and Webb drove it again for the first half of 08 in the development series. Remember, though, with a red and silver black livery, number 94, that – that following season. And of course, ever since it sat around for a while, long-term plan to restore it. Ross and Jimmy Stone finally had the time and the efforts to be able to put it all back together and it's been acquired by a private collector. It's living at the Muscle Car Warehouse um, factory is going to be its, its, its home. And the great irony is that it finds itself sharing <laughs> the same floor space 
with Triple Eight Chassis Ten, which is the car that Craig <laughs> yeah. Lowndes ran in 05 up against Marcus that won some of those races that we we talked about and finished runner up in the championship. Went on to win Bathurst the following year and a couple of Sandow 500s over the journey. So my question is here: What's the most valuable of these two cars in your mind? One won two championships. The other one, Bathurst, a couple of Sandowns, but didn't win the championship. I find it hard to split them purely because because of the emotion around that Bathurst win for the Triple Eight car. We've we've talked about everything that Marcus achieved in this car and what it meant outside of the outside of the actual stats themselves. But you're right, it is missing a Bathurst win. And if you're putting it up against this Bathurst winner, the car that Craig Lowndes used to win the magic word Lowndes Lowndes on the, in the first Bathurst following the passing of Peter Brock. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to split them. It's I've, very hard to split no. them. The Lowndes car's P1 for me. The Ambrose car's P2. But it's uh, probably light years before what's P3 and 4. They're the two standout Ford V8 supercars for me. Glenn Seaton's championship winning Ford credit car's cool. The green-eyed monster's got a lot of cachet. But in terms of pound-for-pound pound results, pedigree, yeah. And this is pre-car of the future era, you Yeah, Because yeah. yeah. Scotty McLaughlin's championship winning Yeah, FG Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm talking about the of the era. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be – well, here's the other thing. won't be a problem because Roger's not going to sell any of that stuff. So <laughs> yeah, I think we're all clear on not having to worry about that one um, yeah. falling into this situation. So a, an amazing classic car. And we love talking about the classic cars here at V8 Sleuth. We love the, the drivers, the stories, the stats, but we do love the, the stories of the cars and where they've been and what they've done, and I hope that gives you a bit of an idea into SBR BAO2, the car that Marcus Ambrose – took to two V8 Supercar Championships and really gave Ford fans hope again because really they had none before this car. It was gone. Five years of desolation in the results desert, as it were. So, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, it's a cool car to look back on. I hope you've enjoyed our little look back. Um, keep the questions rolling in too because we've got some Q&A episodes coming up. We've got some interview chats lined up to record in the next few weeks. Hope you enjoyed the Brad Jones chat and the Terry Wyhoon chat to start off the year. Um, as always, subscribe to the pod. You won't miss an episode if you do. You get the notification through Apple or Spotify. Um, or if you've forgotten to do any of that, jump on our website, click on podcasts, and you'll see all of the episodes in one little panel that you can scroll back through. And the same is the case with the Castrol Motorsport News podcast and the Repco Supercars Weekly Pods. That will fire back up when we get closer to the start of a new Repco Supercars Championship season. Right, that's us done. Thank you, Will. Thank you, Linesman. Thank you, ball boys. It's been a tennis time of the year. I've still got the Australian <laughs> Open in me. Hope you've enjoyed this look back at Marcus's Pertec BA Falcon. We'll join you next week for another edition of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. <laughs>